Hello and welcome to Navy Forum's podcast for Wednesday the 18th of February 2015 and joining me on this short edition are Assistant Editor Steve Withers You made a woman meow and Games Editor Mark Botwright Can I say something? Good to see you, welcome along to this week's short podcast I'll be short as in height Steve I don't know why you keep talking about height Phil when you know you're shorter than I am <laughs> Whatever. So the podcast next week will be on Thursday the 26th of February and that's because we're going to uh, Panasonic's European Convention. It's being held in Frankfurt so we'll have all the latest news on the UK TVs, uh, what's coming, what to expect and um, hopefully we'll get to speak to um, a few of the uh, management people um, at Panasonic as well and find out what's happening with their TV division. So let's move things on swiftly and um, Mark why don't you do the honours and tell us what we can win. Okay, um, still running is the Devolo DLAN 650 Plus Powerline Kit. Uh, that competition will end on the 20th of February. We've also got the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, the film, Blu-ray, which will end on the 28th, and the Babadook ends on the same day. Uh, we've also got the Willow uh, Blu-ray, that will end on the 3rd of March, and rounding things off, the Mad Max collection also ends on 3rd of March. Okay, so those are all the prizes that you can win. Um, obviously, the power line kit will be handy for you, Mark, because you're breaking, breaking up a little bit there. Uh, fingers crossed that uh, Skype keeps it together for this week's podcast. Just to point out, I'll be reviewing the Battle of Duke this week on Blu-ray. There you go. Assuming that Amazon can deliver things to the right address. Because <laughs> they posted it to the wrong one. <laughs> but uh, never mind. What was that? The blow-up doll's gone to the neighbour, has it? Yeah, yes, it has, yes. Very embarrassing. At least it's not a blow-up sheep and we won't go there, Steve, because I still have the photographs. Right, let's move on. Hardware news. And uh, we had our first look at Samsung's flagship TV for 2015. Uh, Steve, you went along to QA Labs behind closed doors to have a look at the JU 9500. And hopefully we should be getting that in very soon for review. So tell us all about it. Yeah, they did. They were very kind to invite us down to the QA Labs to show us and um, take us through their plans for this year in terms of the new TV lineup, but specifically to show us the JU9500, which is their flagship TV. And I've got to say, I mean, you did get a look at it yourself, Phil, at CES, and it is an impressive piece of kit. Um, it's, yeah, like I said, it's got a full direct backlight using their uh, version of Quantum Dot, which they've been working on since 2001, which allows them to deliver, according to them, 98% of DCI, so almost the entire DCI color space. And also, it's high dynamic range. The, the idea basically being with their, with their sort of, at the S ones, the, the flagship top models, they're going to meet the standards that, that are going to be introduced this year for UHD. That's the plan. These are going to be the proper, full, specified UHD TVs going forward. So dynamic, it will support um, H, um, high dynamic range, HDR. It'll have a, a wide enough color space to meet the standards. Uh, and it'll also have 10-bit video. So, um, yeah, in that sense, at least for once, you know you're buying something that's going to be future-proof to a degree. I was just going to say, is this one of the ones they're saying will rival OLED? Yes, Yes, their argument is, well, I mean, well, they, they were quite honest and they said, look, you know, we're still working on OLED, but at the moment we don't think we can deliver OLED, i.e. either bright enough, which is key if you want to do high dynamic range, and at any kind of realistic price point. So they're still working on it behind the scenes, but right now they can't do it, they can't make it, they can't make an OLED TV that would do what it, they want it to do at a price point that they could actually sell, which I guess is fair enough. So instead they feel they can deliver what they want to do right now in terms of um, wider dynamic range and wider color gamut but at a realistic price using an LCD panel, basically. And, you know, having seen the demos that they had on, you've got to say, well, with a full, full direct, direct backlight, with local dimming, you get a very, very impressive picture. You're getting nice dark blacks, but you're also getting, because they're using a, a VA panel as well, so you're getting nice dark blacks, even for an LCD television, but you're also getting this really wide dynamic range. 
so pictures have real punch to them. Um, See, the, the, the problem is with, with LCD, LED, LCD, and LCD has always been shadow detail and lack of shadow detail, certainly in, certainly in the really lower reaches. Where this makes a big difference and where I really noticed it in the demo was using um, you know, the new gamma curve for, for um, wider dynamic range. It brings out detail in areas where LCD has always struggled to bring out detail. And it just made such a big difference to the material that you were watching. Yeah, I asked them, I asked them something about the uh, gamma curve they were using, and they said that they're using a gamma curve of two point six for for um, basically for their high dynamic range TVs. So that was their uh, their answer, not eighteen eighty six or anything like that. Um, but certainly, uh, there was plenty of detail in the shadows. Um, and also, what they're doing is, and I think this this is not unique to Samsung. Obviously, other people are doing this as well. I know uh, Flitz were talking about it when we saw them at CES, Phil. But they're using um, sort of adaptive. Um, backlight technology so that when a scene is dark the energy they're not using to create that dark scene they're using instead to pump up the brightness in the bright scene so they can get a lot of dynamic range within a, a, an individual scene so they might be dark and bright within the same scene but they can actually use the energy they're not using in the bar, dark bit dark bits to really boost the energy in the bright bits and that again makes it very effective it really gives images a completely you know real visual dynamic punch to them which um, i think you get with, with a normal tv Talking about, um, I did ask them about, you know, what would happen with Dolby Vision, for example, which is the sort of alternative high dynamic range format, if you like, or approach. They said it would be compatible with that. Uh, and basically what they're talking about, and this is something we've been talking about for some time now as well, is that the idea is that the TV will map itself to the content. So depending on what the content is, the TV will map itself accordingly, um, which is also handy if you're watching things that aren't um, necessarily mastered in the new standards. Oh, I mean, that, that's obviously what this is aimed at going forward. And the demo they were showing me with the Exodus footage that we saw at CES, again, you know, this has been specially mastered for them in higher dynamic range, in a wider color gamma at 10-bit video by uh, Fox for them. And it looks amazing. But clearly, of course, that's that's great, all well and good. What we need to find out when we get the TV in for review is how does it perform with normal content, which is what we're going to be watching most of the time, at least for the foreseeable future. And is it curved? Yes, it is curved. <laughs> of course it's curved. It's yeah, I mean, curved, as far as Samsung are concerned, it curved is the way forward. What they told me is that, um, uh, curve aside, there's two areas where they, they see they're looking for substantial growth. One is obviously in UHD. They're expecting to sell a lot of UHD TVs this year and next year. And secondly, they're selling a lot more big screen sizes. The screen sizes now they're expecting the, the real growth is going to be in 55 inch and above in terms of um, sales for, for for TVs this year and next year. Uh, and therefore, for example, the, the flagship model is 50 only available in 55, 65, 75 inch screen sizes. And um, actually, no, I'll tell a lie. Sorry, no, that's only available in 65, 75, and 85 inch screen sizes. So they're going very big with that one. So the one we saw, for, I think, was the 65 inch at, um, maybe even the 75 inch at CES. The one I saw last week was the 65 inch. But with, the, with those really big screen sizes, the curve starts to make a bit more sense because they are quite immersive and you can sit a lot closer to the TV because obviously it's got the higher resolution as well. The design's a bit different this year. They've got a, a kind of a, a wider bezel than they've been doing recently and it's got a sort of a chamfered sort of. Um, slight edge to it you know sort of sloping in towards the screen uh, obviously it's a bit thicker too because it's got the full backlight full array backlight um but it, again as always with samsung a very attractive television and um they've got their new um smart platform which i didn't get a look at really because that's still in development and the tvs obviously don't come out until march um, or start coming out in march and obviously with some of the bigger models coming in the summer but um i didn't get a chance to see that but obviously that's that's the one that's powered by tizen not tizer <laughs> and um 
we're going to have a better look at that uh, later on in the, in the year when that actually gets launched officially. So really when we're reviewing the TV at the moment, we're, doing, we're interested in picture quality. That's what we want to look at and how good that is because they've been doing a lot, a lot, a lot of work on this. And I can say from last year, the TVs we saw last year, when it comes to delivering A, an accurate out-of-the-box picture and B, really effective cal- calibration controls, Samsung are certainly in the, at the front of the pack there as far as I'm concerned. As far as you're what? Concerned. Nice to get the full word. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, what we're going to get a look at uh, is pre-production unit <laughs> to look at the picture quality and so on um, because we know our membership, our readers really want to see this, they really want to, to get a, a good look and we're going to do some videos and stuff with it as well so yeah. people can get a good look at the menu system, menu structure for this year, that kind of thing. Which is a little bit different I noticed when I was going through it uh, last week. But the, the picture side is, is finished. That's all ready to go. It's just obviously they're still working a bit on, on the um, smart TV aspects yeah, and the tyres and aspects of it. But as far as picture goes, this is the finished article. This is what it's going to look like when it hits the shops in March, April. Yeah. So obviously we'll, we'll get a look at it, we'll get it reviewed, and then we'll update that review once we have a retail sample with the smart TV and so on. But you get a first look at it, which I think our readers yeah. really want. So talking about first look at new products, ISE happened in Amsterdam last week. Uh, which is the big custom install show, uh, smart home show, which takes place uh, every year. It's either at this show or at the Cedia show in the States where uh, projector manufacturers normally show off the new kit. Um, we got a first look at this Epson projector back at Cedia last year in September. Uh, they unveiled it for the UK uh, at IEC last week, Steve, the LS2. Uh, 10,000 laser projector. Now, um, a lot of places reporting this as a 4K projector. Let's get one thing clear straight away. It is not a native 4K projector. Uh, it's a 1080p native projector using very, very similar technology to what JVC use in their um, pseudo 4K projectors. Yes, exactly. Um, in fact, it's in many respects, it's very similar to what, uh, for, what JVC have already been selling for the last two years. In fact, um, even longer, possibly, um, in terms of their projectors. It's a native 1080p with um, 4K wobulation, if that's what you want to call it. It's basically um, similar to what, we, what JVC have christened eShift. And using a similar technology as well in terms of the actual panel, um, their version of, of liquid crystal on silicon, which is JVC's version, and liquid silicon on crystal, which is um, Epson's version of it. Basically, it's the same technology, which means, hopefully, much deeper blacks on the Epson projector than we've been seeing in the past as well as um, the, the 4K upscaling, if you want to call it that. Uh, and most importantly of all, in terms of this projector, uh, a laser light source. So two blue lasers are being used as a light source for this projector, not a bulb. And that, I think that's one of the one of the big selling points of this projector is actually that. I know, I know you can say, well, it's not native 4K like the Sonys are true, but you're not using a bulb. So it's not going to dim. It's going to be consistent for much longer. And it's going to have a much, much longer life. I mean, 20,000, 30,000 hours. Also, color purity. You're going to get yep. far better color purity using a laser source. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is. I mean, for me, this is the way forward. This is the future te- technology for um, the future of project technology for me. I, I don't think uh, bulbs have. You know, they are fundamentally flawed bulbs because from the minute you turn that projector on the very first time, those damn things are starting to decay and get dimmer, and there's no consistency to, to them. They've got a very short effective lifespan, and they're really expensive to replace. So, if you can get a laser projector or another an alternative source that's Last longer, is more consistent, offers um, purer colours and a much much longer usable life. Then for me, that's the way forward. The other um, thing to to point out here is obviously the price point. This is a six thousand pound projector, but when you're talking about this kind of technology at that price point in a unit which is designed to be a home cinema, home theatre projector, um, that starts to look quite reasonable in terms of price. 
I do. I think that five nine 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 is is a really attractive price point for this projector. I mean, when you consider all you're getting in there in terms of te- technology, and the laser light source, and the consistency and the long life that you'll get. I mean, this projector could last you another five ten years, you know, without having to uh, replace a bulb or anything like that. That starts to look quite attractive. And you know, when you think a bulb can cost three or four hundred quid, um, five nine nine nine. I mean, I thought that was a very aggressive price point actually for what is such new technology. Um, and yes, okay, it's not native 4K, but it can accept a 4K signal in the same way that JVCs can. And um, you know, I think given the, you know, the the lack of 4K content, it's not really an issue. And what's more important is how effective it is handling 1080p content, because that's still what you're watch, predominantly going to be watching over the next five years, in my opinion. And also, um, you know, how effective the, the, the laser light source is in terms of its brightness, obviously. In terms of how it handles 3D, that's something it's still interested in, and in terms of its um, calibration controls. But you know, looking at the um, early, you know, the stuff that's been reviewed um, in the states, where it did come out earlier in the year, late last year. If you look at the reviews there, you know, certainly they've been quite positive. Um, it's a beast of a machine. Have you seen how big it is, Phil? It's absolutely massive. Uh, yeah, I didn't quite realise. I thought it was sort of um, JVC chassis size, but it's actually about it's double bigger. that. Yeah, it's about yeah. double the chassis size. But yeah, then again, um, you know, it needs cooling. Um, and this this was one of the things that we noticed um, with LED technology when it came to projectors. You know, you got the little office projectors which run on LED, which were just not the same thing as a as a home theatre LED projector because you needed serious cooling and uh, those sim projectors were massive um, chassis wise just because of the amount of cooling uh, that needed to be done um, and again yeah. you're talking about a new light source there's going to be a hell of a lot of cooling to be done especially if it wants to remain silent which as a home theater projector it has to remain pretty silent well Epson talking about uh, I think it was 15 dB a really low uh, noise point on this well, projector there you go. I mean that's that's what that's but, four times quieter than than your normal JVC Sony projector yeah, I mean, no, if that's the case, that would be fantastic because you're right. Unless you've got your projector in a in a sound box, you know, a soundproofed box of some sort, the noise it makes can always be an issue. It's in the room with you, and um, so the quieter the projector, the better. Um, I think. Um, I think for me, you know, what what surprised me was that first of all, this kind of came out of nowhere. I know, obviously, we can see Epson has been working on this for a long time, but when it, when it was announced in September, it was just suddenly out of nowhere, laser projecting. You're thinking. Why is nobody else working on this? Well, well, actually, this seems like the obvious way forward. Well, actually, if you think about it, um, how many projector manufacturers have renewed their chassis in the last 12 months? Mm. Not many. How many uh, haven't done it for a little while but are still in the professional game? A couple. So is it a case of they have just been hanging on for uh, particular chassis to come along, which makes sense in terms of a uh, home theatre projector? Or am I it- just or am I just you know wishful thinking here but you've got the likes of Panasonic haven't released anything in the home market for two years now um, JVC haven't renewed their chassis um, for three years now which is a long time for them they normally change them after two years so three years going on to four years is a long time for them um, so is it a case of that maybe there's other others are waiting on the chassis being being available for them to use in their models could be possibly Possibly. I mean, we know that um, Panasonic Professional have certainly dabbled with laser hybrid projectors in the past. I know that Sony Professional have also been making laser projectors um, recently. So it is certainly out there in the pro end of the market. This is the first time it's been available in the the consumer end of the market. And maybe someone like JVC could just, you know, 
buying the tech from Epson. I mean, the similarity between the two models in terms of the other technology involved is so similar anyway, it would be pretty easy for them to port across a lot of this stuff into their own projectors hmm. yeah. with a much, much bigger chassis, it has to be said. I mean, the, the only thing here, Mark, is a case of, you know, this is still a four, uh, this is still a 1080p projector, not 4K projector. So if you had £6,000 to, to spend on a projector at the moment, would you be looking... Um, to stay at 1080p with maybe a new light technology or would you be tempted to go native 4k um given where gaming is i i would i would generally be sticking at 1080p i'm afraid and in terms of where movies are because obviously i'm assuming you still watch movies yeah yeah um again it, it i think a lot's going to depend on and I, I i'm assuming we'll touch on this a little bit later but um delivery system that's still going to kind of determine exactly which way I go, I think, when it comes to upgrading screens and the like. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I was sitting watching um, JVC 700 the other day, Steve, uh, watching Gravity in HD um, on a 10-foot scope screen, and it did cross my mind how much better would this look in 4K, and I have to say that, um, and obviously the JVC's doing the pseudo 4K thing, which I switched off and switched on. Couldn't really notice that big a difference. I mean, it, are we looking too much into 4K making a big difference when it comes to home projection? Well, I think it's something we've discussed in the past, and, and if it was just a resolution increase, no, I don't think it will. I think where it will make a real real difference is, is in terms of you know things like wider dynamic range and wider color gamut and 10-bit yep. video. That's where it's going to make a massive impact, particularly on a big projection screen where you can really tell Things like a lack of banding, that kind of stuff, would, would be very noticeable on a big screen. Um, going back to Mark for a second, in terms of gaming, I, I mean, aside from the sheer size of this beast, for a gamer, it's actually quite a good projector to have because obviously you've got the long life, so you can game for hours and hours and hours, not having to worry about the bulb needing to be replaced. And apparently, its response times are really quick too because of the laser light source. So it could be a, a great projector for gaming, assuming you can get past the sheer size of the projector and the six grand <laughs> price point. <laughs> That wouldn't be an issue, would it, Mark? Oh, no, no, no. I spend that on the average lunch <laughs> bill. <laughs> uh, right, so uh, that's the Epson LS10,000. Hopefully we're going to get that in for review round about April time. Um, more on that when we have it. So all we need to do at this moment in time is look forward to what we have coming up uh, for review. At the moment, um, I have a Cayman wireless, uh, Bluetooth wireless, 2.1 speaker, Steve, which... When the PR t spoke to me about it, I was like, yeah, all right, send it through. And I wasn't expecting much. And I have to say, it's a it's a little single unit speaker, but uh, you could use it for a number of roles. And one of them is soundbar. You know, shove a 3.5mm jack into the headphone socket of your TV and you have an instant soundbar. And I have to say, it sounds bloody good for, for the money and for the size. I've been really impressed. And I think it points to, yes, it looks a little cheap in terms of build quality when it comes to the remote control and maybe the chassis but you can tell the money's gone into decent drivers and decent amplification because it does sound pretty full-bodied really impressed with it yeah i mean i reviewed a kit sound um spoiler speaker before christmas 2013 and it's called ignite the little tiny one but again like i think i told you when you got this one in for review i said you know i was really surprised at how good it sounded considering its physical size uh, you know this is a company i think that has produced some very good sounding well-designed products um and it's worth taking note of um and very competitively priced as well which yeah. is always good to see i mean competitively priced the remote is cheap as chips and will fall apart within i don't know the first 
two weeks of use, I would imagine. So, you know, corners have been cut, but corners have, been, have not been cut when it comes to certainly the sound quality, which is really impressive. So I've got that, and I've also got a new Pure Radio, which has just been released, and uh, I have the first one in, so more on that later. And you've got some Denon product. Yep, yep. I'm getting the AVR X7200, which is their new flagship model. So this has replaced the 5200 as, as the flagship AVR. Obviously, it's got um, got Dolby Atmos built in. You can add Oro 3D for a small fee. Um, it has nine channels of built-in applications. So that's the same as the 5200, in fact. Um, and you can do up to 11 channels, so you could do a 7.1.4 Atmos configuration if you so wished. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how else it differs from the, the, the X500 yet, but I can do a direct comparison, actually. Um, and I'm, in, I'm curious to see, I think, and I don't quote me on this, but I think it might might be that it's um, it's upgradable to DTSX, possibly. But that, that remains to be seen. Hopefully we'll find out more about that in so a month. So you're a bit annoyed by the 5200 now? Um, <laughs> No, no, it's okay. It's okay. We'll see. We'll I suppose. See. If you, I suppose if you sit on the fence, you tend to sit on the fence forever and never buy anything new. So um, there's always that. Uh, I may have something from Denon, yet to be confirmed. Coming up in the next couple of weeks. So that's uh, upcoming reviews. We're going to go to games news next. And I guess. Uh, Mark, the problem with games news is that we've just um, had a games podcast come out, so um, you've kind of discussed everything. Yep, uh, pretty much. Well, the big points uh, of the day eight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> At least uh, not me this but, time. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, Mark, you can't understand the word you're saying, mate. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh. Am I there? <laughs> yes, you're there. On you go. Uh, did you hear any of that? No. <laughs> right. Uh, yes, uh, apologising for the lateness of the games poddy uh, this time, but we, we tackled some things that we'd already spoken about on the weekly podcast, such as uh, the Windows 10 event, um, game streaming and the HoloLens, that kind of thing. Uh, the latest releases, um, Evolve, which Manny's review uh, should be on the site when this podcast goes up, uh, as well as obviously tackled a, a bunch of uh, Nintendo 3DS things like reviewing the latest uh, model of uh, the 3DS console and Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. Um, we also got into Dying Light with a bit of a discussion of zombie parkour and that kind of thing or where the zombies have had their day uh, and round things off with uh, Battlefield Hardline and whether, well, this, the ongoing state of the Master Chief collection. When you say uh, zombie parkour, did you say is that what free running? Yeah, yes, they're, they're, it's kind of it mixes a bit of free running from a first person perspective, and you know, running across rooftops and that kind of thing with a, a zombie game. Oh, that's do zombies do parkour as well? Or just you? I think it's just you. Oh well, yeah. if the zombies could do it, then that's well scary. Yeah, because zombies <laughs> are only scary when they can move fast. Because if they, they're yeah. so slow, it's just like, like scary. 20, 20, 20 yeah. weeks later, <laughs> that's scary. Yeah. They're not proper zombies, though, are they? <laughs> well, they're undead. Isn't that the definition of a zombie? This is a, a very zombified can of worms we'd be opening here. <laughs> and that's it for game news. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much games news. <laughs> so there's a new podcast out. Go listen to it. Go download it after you listen to this one. And next is movie news. Oh, 
Okay, um, I've got a feeling that what's at the cinema, Steve, is is boring as hell. Well, I don't think it's boring. I, th- I think you'll probably find it quite humorous, Phil. But uh, it's Fifty Shades of Grey, obviously. The big film released this weekend and just in time for Valentine's Day. Um, I should start by saying I've never read the book, obviously, because I'm a bloke. Uh, and I have seen bits of it, though, like brief sections of the book you know, in reviews and stuff. And the book looks absolutely appalling. I think the film probably is an improvement on the book. Um, but not much. Um, it's it's a tale of um, of a, a young literary student who's uh, called Anastasia Steele, and she interviews uh, sort of this uh, enigmatic um, businessman, billionaire businessman called C- Christian Grey, and they develop they basically you know develop a sadomasochistic relationship throughout the course of the film. And it is without doubt. I mean, I don't know if the director and writer meant it to be a comedy, but certainly. It was a comedy as far as I was concerned. It, there were moments in it that were laugh out loud, funny, although maybe not intentionally. And we, I'm, my girlfriend and I weren't the only ones in the cinema that were laughing. I mean, there were, there were lines in it where I don't know how the, the actors actually managed to say them with a straight face. But obviously the film's being sold as being, you know, because the book is fairly explicit. The film's being sold as, you know, this erotic uh, movie with, uh, with lots of steamy sex scenes. And the fact is it hasn't at all. I mean, it's R-rated. Uh, I mean, it's 18 in this country, but obviously it was made to get an R rating in the States, which means obviously no willies are going to be seen, because if you see a willy, then you're going to get an NC-17. Um, the sex scenes are, are tamer than anything you'll see on HBO, you know, or if you've ever seen the TV series Spartacus, you'll know, you know, you know, it's nowhere near as bad as that. And and worst of all, the, the S&M stuff that's supposed to be going on in it, you know, there's a bit where he's, he's she's sort of tied up and he's got a... Um, a cat of nine tails, which my girlfriend described as like a dirty mop that he's sort of stroking over her in slow motion. I mean, it was absolutely laughable. Um, really, I mean, and also, bizarrely, it just ends. The film just ends. And you think, hang on, is that it? Because the characters haven't gone on any kind of journey. There's no been no development whatsoever, no story arc at all. It just kind of begins and ends almost exactly the same place. And you're kind of sitting there thinking, what was the point of all that? I don't get it. I just didn't get the point of it all. But it, it is... Um, you know, it's whilst it's not pornography in the classic sense of the word, it is pornography in the sense it's, com- it's consumer pornography. It's just full, full of luxury products, beautifully shot images of gleaming cars, Audis all over the place, this kind of thing. It looks like an advert, it looks like an advert with a bit of light spanking lighted in for action, you know, for, for good measure. The characters are one dimensional. I mean, they, there's a laughable attempt to give Christian Grey some sort of backstory where, you know, his mother was a, not, not just you know, a drug addict, but a drug addict and a prostitute. Who um, dies when he's four? Um, you know, he's, he's an impoverished upbringing. He gets adopted. You know, none of it. And then he's at fifteen. His wife, his mother's friend, um, you know, starts developing a relationship with him where she uses him as a submissive. You know, all this stuff. How, just, can just I ludicrous. just ask? How does he become a billionaire? Well, good question. Because first of all, he never does any work in the film. So God knows. There's one point actually where he has to sort of leave suddenly because the company. Well, you never find out what's going on. But the impression is there's some problem with the company. I'm not surprised. The guy's never in his office, so why he would be in trouble? Also, given that he's a, an enigmatic billionaire who's in the you know in the society pages a lot, he's, he, he never once gets recognised when he's out in public. Not once. Um, it's just ludicrous and you never really find out what it is he does by the way i'm, I'm assuming because he's based in seattle it's some sort of you know either tech technology of some kind but again that's never really made clear he's a really boring character and see it sounds like by... what would happen if bruce wayne didn't fight crime yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, he's like the Bruce Wayne without being Batman. Yeah. He's just really boring. And the actor is really uncharismatic as well. So you don't even understand. I don't, you've no idea what the girl would possibly see in him, other than the fact he's loaded, obviously, and quite, you know, he's got toned abs and all this sort of stuff. But it's just really empty, vacuous stuff. And 
but best of all, it's just laughably funny. And you're kind of thinking, you know, Danny Elfman scores it, and, and he scores it like a comedy. There's scenes in it where the scoring is, it's a scene where they, and I'm not making this up, there's a scene where he wants her to sign a contract, you know, so dominant slash submissive contract where she agrees to certain sexual acts, this sort of stuff. First of all, what happens if she if she breaches the contract? And that would never stand up in a court of law anyway. Just, but there's a thing where they sit down across a you know, business table to, to negotiate the terms of the contract. And, and, and the scoring in it is like a comedy. And you are just laughing at this. Um, it's, it's, it's terrible. It really is terrible. And unfortunately, what's really depressing is not only is it terrible, it made $240 million at the weekend in the worldwide box office, which is, I think, is a record for a film of that rating. And you're thinking, oh, God, and there's two more books as well. So you're now you're thinking, like, there's definitely going to be at least one sequel. That's not bad for a comedy. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think the funniest thing, and I'm going to get the credit here to Laura, who, my girlfriend, who said it took Matthew McConaughey 40 minutes to get into space and interstellar. It took Christian Grey, Grey an hour to get into Anastasia in 50 Shades of Grey. I don't get that. Don't you? Don't you get the joke? They both have trouble on re-entry. <laughs> <laughs> Boom dish. You took a little longer than I thought you were going to take there, Mark. Never mind. Sorry, it, the the book, I've got to say, it does sound... I don't know if anyone's ever seen um, the Steve Coogan stand-up, The Man Who Thinks He's It. Yep. But in, in it, Pauline Calf reads from her book, The First Class <laughs> Millionaires. <laughs> That's almost exactly how I, it yeah, sounds. Yeah, I know where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the book it was started out as um, fan fiction, didn't it? Online fan fiction. It wasn't even you know, and then then got picked up by a publisher. It, it's uh, it's just sorry, fan fiction. Yeah, it's fan just, fiction it was just of written what? by some fifty-year-old woman wrote. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, a fan of S and M, presumably. Uh, yeah, but she wrote it online as, a, as a, this book, and and then it just became this publishing phenomenon. And um, well, I'm glad I never read the book. That's all I can say. Having sat through, sat through the film non-plus by the end of it and, and thinking like well that was a waste of two hours of my life i'm not going to get back in a hurry um and I, I, looking around the cinema as we sat down it was some couples but predominantly women i have to say um and i think i'm going to be disappointed at the end of the film because they're not going to get much in the way of action uh, i mean i don't really understand the idea behind an, you know an erotic movie in the modern day and age because you know if you want to watch sex you can get an unlimited amount of it for nothing for free on online these days yeah i mean if it's got a decent story though you know, it's something like um, Basic Instinct. Yeah. You know, yeah, it had over-the-top sex scenes, but actually it had a pretty half-decent thriller behind it as well. Yeah, there's so many other films you can think of that made in the past, like, well, I mean, there's been a whole, this whole genre, isn't there, of sort of softcore um, erotic thrillers that have been knocking around since, since the 80s. And the obvious film that you think of, or I thought of certainly, was Nine and a Half Weeks, the Mickey Rourke. Um, Kim Bassinger movie, which had some similarities in it to, to this film in terms of uh, you know a sadomasochistic relationship. But I mean, it's just—I mean, she, the, the, the whole thing is just ludicrous from beginning to end. First of all, she's a she's a twenty-one-year-old student who's never you know who's a virgin, which I've got unlikely to say to me. <laughs> She's a, the, she doesn't. She's just, she doesn't know what a butt plug is. So she's the, she's the most naive twenty-one-year-old in the history of the world. I mean, given that kids these days have access to pornography from the age of about ten, I'm guessing no one at the age of twenty-one now is in well, any way naive Christ, about when, anything. When I live up north, twenty-one is usually a good age for a grandmother. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just it's it's ludicrous. Uh, so from the, from the very beginning, you're thinking. I mean, also, it doesn't even. It's, it's sloppily made because at one point the film begins with her driving to Seattle to, to interview him. And she's in a, uh, a convertible Mercedes, which is unusual considering she's an impoverished student. Um, but later on, she's driving a VW Beetle. So 
I don't even know whose car that was at the beginning of the film that she was driving. She goes to, um, he comes to her university to do a sort of valedictorian speech. And um, it's meant to be set in, in the States, but they obviously shot it in Vancouver because it said Vancouver University. I thought, well, they didn't even change the sign on the podium. How sloppy <laughs> is that? Oh, you know, it just, it's the whole thing. I, just, I, I think you're reading too much into this. <laughs> Well, that's how bored I was. It, I'm not kidding. <laughs> 30 minutes into the film, Laura said to me, is that, how long have we been sitting here for? I said, 30 minutes. She goes, no one said a single swear word and hasn't been any sex yet. I said, I know. Up to this point, this could be a PG certificate movie, if that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, there better be some action sooner. I'm going. <laughs> I felt pretty sorry for Dakota Johnson, who is the daughter of John Johnson and Manny Griffiths, actually, who actually gives a, better, a far better performance than this film deserves. But it, it is, it is just woefully, uh, it's just boring and... Um, unintentionally funny uh, and pointless uh, and you know and it doesn't even deliver on the sex so, so at the end of the day you kind of sounds like what? sounds like my life <laughs> <laughs> two nipple clamps out of ten then <laughs> two butt plugs out of five <laughs> I give it three and a half butt plugs yes it, it's it's uh, it, we gave it four out of ten but um, I think that's generous frankly <laughs> okay so uh, films that are opening this weekend this coming weekend. This coming weekend, we have Project Almanac, which is... A, actually, bizarrely, we have two time travel movies opening up this weekend, which is like buses come along, will come along together. Project Almanac, which is a found footage time travel movie, and then Predestination, which stars um, Ethan Hawke, uh, and is also a time travel movie, a time travel thriller. Of the two, I'm looking, more, I'm looking forward more to Predestination, which actually looks quite interesting from what I've seen of it. Um, and also opening this weekend is The Wedding Ringer, which I've already seen. And that uh, is, uh, well, as the name's kind of, the clues are in the name, really. It's uh, a comedy about a guy who's got no friends and desperately needs someone to be his best man. And as uh, Kevin Hart plays a professional best man, who basically you can hire to sort of secretly be your best man, pretend to be your friend, create a fake background and a fake history so that the wife you, or wife-to-be that you've been lying to doesn't know that you don't have any mates. Um, and I've got to say, that's actually quite good fun. I, I mean, I, I watched that after I watched 50, 50 Shades of Grey and it was a damn sight more fun <laughs> than the previous film. <laughs> so at least it's funny in places and, and um, at, at times actually quite quite moving and emotional and quite well done. It had some, it, it, it basically, its big failing is that the plot is so obvious from the minute you sit down. You know, there's no surprises at all in terms of, you know, the plot itself. But at least it has some decent jokes in it and, uh, and some charming performances. And, and the relationship between the two leads was pretty good in it. So I did actually quite enjoy that. But, um, yeah, that, that was a sort of after, after the misery of Fifty Shades of Grey, it was at least nice to have a few laughs, a few intentional laughs rather than unintentional ones. Okay, uh, so Wedding Ringer, the review for that will be up, uh, be, well, probably when this podcast goes up, actually, yeah. middle of the week. Um, right, so let's move on. Blu-rays um, also coming up next week. Wild River, is that is that the one from uh, or the 90s? Now you're thinking of um, River Wild? Right. Okay. You mean the one with um? Was that the, with Meryl yeah, Streep? Yeah, the Meryl Streep and, and they go they go white raft, white water yeah, raft, yeah. rafting. Yeah. You're thinking. I think that's called the River Wild. <laughs> All right. Okay. This is Elia Kazan's a 1960 film with uh, Montgomery Clift. So no, <laughs> is the answer <laughs> to that question. Uh, uh, yeah, we got Fury coming out uh, on Blu-ray next week, which is the as I described it, I think a couple of weeks ago, the Brad Pitt tank movie, uh, which I have seen at cinema and um, enjoyed and, in places. And uh, and did it did it tank? Actually, I don't know if it did that well. I, don't, I think it may have, you know. I don't think it did particularly well at the box office. Um, I think it's, unfortunately, it suffers from being narratively flawed. But the battle scenes, the tank battle scenes are quite quite exciting, actually. I'm sure it'll be a great uh, Blu-ray because you're going to have a really good soundtrack. Um, but it, it is, it's worth seeing. I'm not sure I'd want to buy it myself, but 
Kaz is doing a review of that, should be up this week. Uh, Wild River, as I mentioned, which I'm doing the review of, which is um, Eddie Kazan's 1960 movie with Montgomery Clift. And Kaz is also reviewing the Manchurian what's, what's, what's that about? What's it about? It's um, oh, actually difficult to say, actually, because the description it's got is combining psychology, eroticism, documentary realism, and exquisite pictorial beauty within a cinemascope frame. <laughs> It looks like it's set in the 30s, and it's about a Lando, um, a landowner arguing with a um, the hang on administrator for the Tennessee Valley Authority. It seemed riveting. I think it's going to be a, it's going to be sort of a, you know one of those sort of early 60s, late 50s pot boiler romances with a with a bit of cinema, you know, cinema, cinema. I'd, I'd cinema. love to hear. I'd love to hear that that PR company do the synopsis for Weekend of Bernies. <laughs> So where does the river come in? <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> oh, you're going to have a rivet and weekend watching that anyway. <laughs> uh, and uh, Kaz is doing the Manchurian Candidate, the um, it's 1962, I think it is. Yeah, 62. Um, Frank Sinatra movie about uh, brainwashing and assassins, which actually is very good. Definitely worth seeing. Uh, with fantastic performance in that from Angela Lansbury, of all people, as um, Lawrence Harvey, who's uh, a not president. I think he's a senatorial candidate, but she's his um, sort of um, very um, aggressive and um, um, power hungry mother. Um, she's very good in it. It's a good movie. It's good. It got bad. Well, not so much bad, but because um, uh, because Frank Sinatra was the producer uh, and he was a close friend of Kennedy. After Kennedy's assassination in '63, he had the film removed from circulation for a long time because he just felt it was too close to uh, what had been going on in reality. Um, but it's, it's it's a great movie and worth seeing if you haven't seen it. It's, it's very good. Okay, um, for the next bit, let's go to Mark first. Mark, um, what's your romantic comedy favourite? And don't say you don't have anybody, any, because most people do. Um, pure kind of rom-com, I, I think uh, The Wedding Singer is probably... Good choice. Anyone I, I'd probably go back to. Do you, um, want, do you want to take a bet that The Wedding Ringer was called that so it would tie in with The Wedding Singer by any chance? Yeah, yeah, probably. Because the title was originally The Golden Tux, which is a plot point within the film. Uh, and they obviously, yeah, the wedding ringer just sounds way too much like the wedding singer. Not to be a quick, not to be deliberate. But I, I would think that would work against them because Google Auto Suggest is going to screw them over. <laughs> probably, probably, uh, yeah. It, it, and again, it's an unusual um, romantic comedy in in the terms of it, it's really fake reality wedding singer, over the top eighties fake reality, which I really enjoy actually. Yeah, that, that's what makes it. I mean, if you took that film and you kind of took it completely out of the 80s setting, I don't know if I'd enjoy it as much. Yeah. It, it's the kind of mad hair and the, the crappy fashion that kind of makes it. The, the soundtrack as well. The soundtrack is oh. absolutely brilliant. Oh, it's, it's fantastic Cheese soundtrack. Yeah. Absolutely it's definitely Cheese one of the few decent Adam Sandler movies. Yes, I'd, I would agree with that. And um, I quite like the fact that What's-His-Face uh, turns up as the wedding singer at the end of it as well. Um, oh, his name goes out of my head completely. Steve Buscemi? Steve Buscemi. Yeah, he, do, he does a good little breakdown scene, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> I haven't seen that film for years. I must watch it again, actually. You're really making me want to see it now. Yeah. No, it is I've always wondered yeah. whether it was a, kind of like a little joke in The Sopranos when Steve Buscemi comes out in that. Do you remember the scene where he's wearing like his 80s suit? Because he went to went to prison back in those days. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, other than that, probably uh, I don't know. Kind of nineties things like there's something about Mary. Beyond that, pure kind of traditional rom coms. I don't think there are many that I'd really kind of I don't know. Watch again. It's quite a tight genre. It's you know kind of you stray too far from it, and it doesn't really kind of. It's not really a rom com anymore. 
Oh, the one that recently that really worked for for me in te- and I'd class it as a romantic comedy is Wally. I think that is just a master class in filmmaking. Um, hardly anybody says anything for the first forty minutes. Um, they're two robots. They they don't exist, but somehow it plays on you. The story plays on you, and you end up caring for two robots. Which basically, how the hell can two robots fall in love? Type of thing. But it just so well told and, and such good storytelling that you fall for it. Yeah, I think it's the last great Pixar movie, really. I mean, it really is a beautiful film to look at. Beautifully realised. Uh, the relationship between Wally and Eve is Evie, Eve is um, gorgeous. You mentioned the scene to me when we were talking about it last week. Yeah, Define Dancing. Yeah, when when, when he's using an ex- fire extinguisher as a propulsion unit um, yeah. and they're dancing yeah. in space. Funnily enough, since you just mentioned it earlier on, uh, Phil, she does exactly the same thing in Gravity, doesn't she? She uses a fire extinguisher, <laughs> a la Wally, yeah, <laughs> to get between two spaceships. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, we won't yeah. have the debate we had this morning because that really would spoil things for people. But yeah, yeah totally. Uh, the, you know, it just the fact that these things don't exist, it's an animation, but at the same time, it's just so beautifully done. And the score is fantastic. It's Thomas Newman that does the score. Fantastic mm. score. And um, what's his face turns up at the end? Peter Gabriel. There you go. At the end of um, Wally. At the end of Wally, he does the oh. the closing song. Oh, the music! Yeah, it doesn't physically turn up. In the no, film. no, no. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking I missed that bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's an animation. How the hell is he getting no, there? Okay. No, because right. there is there is um. It's one of those strange animations where they um. Remember the they keep Wally keeps seeing the advert for the company that you know they, they flew everyone off the planet. Yeah. And the and the CEO played by Fred Willard. That is, that is actually him. It's, you know, it's, it's one of those strange things where they use a human being for the animation, or animate a human being realistically in a way. But then later on, when they find the little humans on the spaceship, they're, they're all sort of bloated and can't move, can they? Yeah, but uh, Michael Crawford's in it as well, isn't he? Briefly, yes, yeah. in the Hello Dolly footage. Great film, love that. Uh, you, Steve? I'm going to go for, well, I've got two really. One, one because I like it because it's really an anti-romantic comedy. It's, it's quite deliberately structured and set out to to if you like um, deconstruct the tropes of, of a romantic comedy, which is Five Days of Summer, which I think is a fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. It's very funny. Two really great leads in, in Zoe, Zoe Deschanel and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who've got fantastic chemistry on screen. It's shot, it's shown, it's, it's presented in a non-linear fashion, but it takes apart a relationship over 500 days, as the name suggests. Her character's name is Summer, hence the title. And, um, but it, does, it's sort of, it, it juxtaposes things. So you'll see one minute where someone's very happy, juxtaposes a scene where they're very miserable straight afterwards from different points in the same relationship. It's very clever, very witty. Uh, I really like that one. And my other favourite romantic comedy, because people don't think of it as that, is The Princess Bride. Generally, people think of it more as a fantasy film or a fantasy comedy, but actually, you know, it's, at its heart, it's about love and and it is a romantic comedy. And uh, I think it's a fantastic film. Um, really, really funny. Uh, great cast, very, very sort of eclectic and eccentric cast, but, but all of them are really good in it. Um, we've got, got Handsome Lee with Carrie Elwes. You've got um, uh, Robin Wright in her first movie, who is, um, looks gorgeous and does a very good English accent, I have to say. Um, then you've got um, some people like um, Mandy Patinkin playing Inigo Montoya, you know, which gives the film everyone's favourite line when my name is Indigo Montoya, you kill my father, prepared to die. Um, and you've got Andre the Giant playing the giant, you've got Billy Crystal turning up as Miracle Max. It's it's a great movie. It's it's kind of, um, it's witty and, and intelligent with some really funny lines in it that um, things like don't get involved in a land war in Asia, which is really funny uh, in context. And um, yeah, I love it. But, it, but it's hard, it's, it's about it's about love and it's a love story and, and therefore it counts as a romantic comedy. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Why doesn't it, Mark? Um, 
because it's an adventure film and just because the central plot point is about the kind of damsel in distress doesn't make it strictly speaking a romantic comedy because the romance only really actually comes into it towards the end do you mean it starts in the very beginning but they're split apart for most of the film well but isn't any romantic comedy there's two characters who generally either fall in love well they they generally hate each each other other right at the start that's the whole point of romantic comedy you go from one point to the next well the idea is that they're they're separated by some kind of thing either they dislike of one another or obstacles they have to overcome in order to be together which they do and also don't forget one at one point she doesn't realize who wesley is and, and he thinks he's the he's the dread pirate roberts and then um dislikes him so there's that kind of animosity they've got the, the comic sidekick friends um yeah no it's, it's purely it's a pure romantic comedy and if i wasn't going to go with wally i'd go with groundhog day just because yes. it, yeah that is by definition the perfect romantic comedy i think it's about somebody discovering themselves and then discovering somebody else and he can't move on until he does that. Yeah, I think most most blokes would generally go along with that one. That's like the acceptable face of romantic comedies. Bit of Bill Murray, <laughs> bit of comedy, bit of slapstick. But yeah, secretly- I think for, for blokes, High Fidelity is probably the best romantic comedy because it's kind of very blokey. It, 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 it for, addresses for me, us directly. Well, you see, for me, it, it goes. It, 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 it's too much that way. It's too much. Uh, it's the same with the one he wrote about Arsenal. What was the What was that one Fever again? Pitch. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, it was good, but it, it took it too far out the other way for me. Oh, I like, it. I like, I like it because I think it's uh, it gives you. Uh, I, I think it's a genuinely accurate insight into the male mentality, which is unusual in films. Even in, you know, even though most films are made by men, yeah, that's, a bit, really of a that's a bit of a generalization and painting everybody everybody with the same brush, though, is it not? Saying, saying that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I moisturize. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know where to go from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My story's what, Mark? <laughs> I'm not saying, but I'll get those wrinkles out. <laughs> One way or another. <laughs> no matter how much I put on. <laughs> what about stuff like yeah. Juno? Does that count? Could do. Lost in Translation? I mean, anything uh, that's now, comic. <clears throat> now you see Lost in Translation, yeah. is that a romantic comedy? I didn't include it, even though I love it, because, yes, I don't think it's actually funny enough to be classed as an out-and-out comedy. It's really a sort of comic drama, isn't And it? it's really pretty um, um, ambiguous as to whether there is a relationship, a romantic yeah, relationship yeah. there or not. Yes, it is. I thought Bill Murray was robbed for not getting an Oscar for that film. It was his by yeah. far away his best performance. Yeah, and then the next one he did after that, that Broken Flowers or whatever. Broken Flowers. Oh, terrible. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> That was just boring as dishwater, it really was. <laughs> it was funny when, he, when I was going through it that I sort of realised um, two things, which is basically, if it was a British romantic comedy, it was almost definitely written by uh, Richard Curtis. And if it was an American romantic comedy, it's probably got John Cusack in the lead because he seems to have been in an inordinate amount of romantic comedies his, over his the years. His career just seems to have been, his, his, his regular paycheck was a rom-com, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's done more than his fair share. Because I think quite a few people have listed other films in the in the thread, and, and quite a lot of them have involved John Cusack. Things like um, Gross Point Blank's a good example. Um, and yet he's never appeared, has he, opposite Jennifer Aniston? Which no. would seem like between the pair of them, it's like the million monkeys and million typewriters. You would think that at some point Jennifer Aniston and John Cusack would come together and destroy the romantic Has comedy Jennifer genre. Has Jennifer Aniston been in a romantic... Because she's basically the queen of the shit romantic comedies, right? She's done an awful lot of really bad... I mean, she really should have a word with her agent. She's done some shocking films since Friends has finished. 
But she, did she ever do one with Matthew McConaughey, who until recently was the king of the rubbish romantic comedy as well? Uh, until he'd had his, his reconnaissance in his career, suddenly so took off, he started doing serious films. Um, he did an awful lot of really, really bad romantic comedies too. Did you say the phrase reconnaissance? Yes, the reconnaissance. That's the phrase that's used to describe an actor whose career goes from being really rubbish to suddenly doing loads of really good stuff for no obvious reason. I, I mean, if I told you sort of five years ago that Matthew McConaughey would have done like, you know, six or seven really, really good films and won the Oscar, you'd have laughed in my face. <laughs> Okay, well, um, sadly, I think that's it for yet another uh, AV Forums podcast this week. So my thanks to Steve Weathers. There are two kinds of women, high maintenance and low maintenance. And Mark Botwright. Are you finished now? Yes, we are. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkavforums.com for latest reviews, news and video. And you can also leave us a rating on iTunes. Don't forget, the Games Podcast is out this week. Go and download that one right now and uh, listen to the guides. And don't forget that we are back next Thursday, not Wednesday, but Thursday, uh, with coverage from the Panasonic European Convention. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you next week. 